It's one of the most popular Christmas carols of all time. You can hear it sung in the movies, It's a Wonderful Life, and A Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> you can hear it on music at the local grocery store. Just about every church sings it at Christmas time. Though you probably have heard it sung, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, numerous times in your life, you may not know that what we sing today sounds nothing like the original. The Christmas Carol was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley lived from 1707 to 1788. He was the brother of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Charles was a prolific hymn writer who com composed over 6,500 hymns in his lifetime. When he wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, however, that's not what it was originally called. The first line was completely different. The hymn originally read, Hark, how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. Welkin is an old English word that means the vault of heaven. But even in Wesley's day, people rewrote the first line, or people didn't know what the word meant. In 1753, a friend and fellow preacher named George Whitefield rewrote the first line to read, Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. A herald, by the way, is a messenger. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to say the corniest joke that's ever been said. Contrary to what some people believe, there are no angels named Harold. <laughs> Originally, Wesley insisted that the carol be sung to a slow, somber, religious tune of the day. But 100 years later, in 1840, composer Felix Mendelssohn set the hymn to the upbeat melody we know and love today. Charles Wesley would barely recognize it. He was more interested than substance over style. Thankfully, many of Wesley's original lyrics remain. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of the most theologically profound hymns ever written. It teaches what Christmas is truly about, God and sinners reconciled. The celebration of Christmas really isn't meant to be a birthday party for Jesus. Christmas is when we celebrate the incarnation that the infinite God became a mortal man to live and die for us. Listen to the wonderful words with which Wesley talks about the amazing miracle. Veiled in the flesh the Godhead see, hail to the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God came to our world veiled in flesh and blood. He was pleased to come and live among us sinful men as a man himself. He truly is our Emmanuel, a name which literally means God with us. 
God became one of us and lived among us to suffer our punishment and die our death. As you celebrate this week and over the Christmas holiday, as you sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, mediate on the, meditate rather, on the marvel at that amazing miracle and God's amazing grace that led him to become one of us to save us. Now we'll look at the lyrics and see what the meaning in these lyrics is. Uh, can you put the first verse up, Trish, please? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now the main, we focus on peace on earth. But I think the main point of that verse is God and sinners reconciled. Second Corinthians 5, and I didn't give Trish all these verses, I'm sorry. 5, 17 through 21, Therefore, if anyone in Christ, is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through, through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting the people's sins against them. There's the mercy mild. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors and though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And reading the peace on earth, I, not too long ago I had been just studying a little, reading some verses came to my mind, and I thought, wait a minute. In John or Matthew ten thirty four, Jesus said, "Think not that I am come to send peace on earth." He said, "I come not to send peace, but a sword." One commentator put it like this, For think not that I am come, that is, think not that universal peace will be the immediate consequence of my coming. Just the contrary, both public and private divisions will follow. Wheresoever my gospel comes with power, this is not the design though, it be the event of his coming through the opposition of devils and men, that's talking about how he was come against. People didn't receive it well because to reconcile something is to, if I reconcile someone from an evil life or a sinful life, I take it away from that life. So, the spirits or principalities that govern that type of living are not happy. To have something taken away. Luke 21, 12 and 51, the corresponding verse in that gospel, 
Jesus says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you, nay, but rather division. Another commentator wrote, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. To set up a temporal kingdom. Remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking Jesus talking to Jews who expected a earthly kingdom. And that's not what Jesus was about. A kingdom in great pomp and outward peace and tranquility. Only for them. Christ came to make peace with God for men and to give the gospel of peace and spiritual and eternal peace to men, but not external peace, especially that which is not consistent with the preservation of truth. I tell you, nay, whatever suppositions you have made or whatever notions you have entertained, I solemnly affirm, and you may depend upon it. I am not come into the world on any such account as to establish outward peace among men. So once we, and that just hit me, I thought, wait a minute, we got something going on here. We got opposing messages. How should be, peace be achieved? What would that peace look like? Second, or Jesus said, I leave with you my peace. Not just, it's only the peace you can have once you've been reconciled. In some ways, maybe those lines should have been flipped around. Because the Jews wanted our earthly kingdom, they wanted to, uh, they wanted vengeance and revenge is what they wanted. Now where do we stand? What does peace mean to us? Especially this time of year. Is peace a, uh, a shrinking bank account? But all the kids got what they wanted? Peace won't be found on a sticker on a car lot. What is Jesus' peace? He said, my peace, I leave with you. We'll move on. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. I don't have one of those pen microphones. Or collar microphones. <laughs> Joyful all ye nations rise. Matthew 16 and 25, Jesus said, is for whosoever will. 2 Peter 3 and 9, not willing for any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, join the triumph of the skies. In modern English, the word triumph doesn't have any real particularity to it. It doesn't distinguish it from words like victory and win. They all sort of generically denote successes as opposed to failures in some endeavor or another. But in ancient Rome, 
a triumph with something entirely unique. Sure, it was restricted to military endeavors, but even more than that, a triumph was restricted to a particular event that could happen only after military successes of a particular sort. To be specific, a triumph could only be awarded by vote of the Senate to a victorious general who had conquered more than 5,000 enemies in battle. His successes must not have been preceded by major defeats, nor would the honor of a triumph be given if his campaign had not achieved the intended result, the expansion of Roman sovereignty and peace in the conquered region. If the necessary preconditions were met, the Roman general was awarded the highest of honors. He was allowed to lead his victorious army through the streets of the city, thronged everywhere by jubilant citizens and resounding with their adoration. To modern people, the triumph would have looked like a cross between our civic parades and religious processions. It was led by singers, musicians, and dancers, followed by an open display of all the choicest spoils of war, then by the leaders of the vanquished enemy bound for disgrace and chains. Remember that line. I know you won't, but I'm going to say it. Then came the general dressed in purple, embroidered with gold, with a crown of laurel on his head and a branch of laurel in his right hand, and in his left, an ivory scepter with an eagle atop it, having his face painted with vermilion in like manner as the statue of Jupiter in festival days, and a golden ball hanging from his neck on his breast, standing in a gilded chariot adorned with ivory and drawn by four white horses. That comes from the Roman antiquities. It's quite a scene. With that in mind, then consider anew the command you've doubtless sung dozens of times in the first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Join the triumph of the skies, the song implores you to do. If you're like me, you're struck all at once with a paradoxical combination of near parallels and radical differences between the scene described above and the one described in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. The dazzling brightness, majesty, and beauty of the angelic choir and their song is reminiscent of the Roman triumphal procession. It even makes the splendor of that earthly procession singers and performers look rather trite by comparison. But what of the one heralded, the star of the show, the one on whom all the celebration centers, unlikely, unlike the entry of the victorious general into Rome in which the heralded hero is exalted about as highly as any man can be, the entry of our Lord into our world is marked by profound humiliation. There in the feeding trough, the hero lies, newly born into a poor Jewish family. In what sense, then, is the advent of our Lord's triumph? 
It's not a, tri- a Roman triumph, of course. It's a triumph of the skies. This is a heavenly fair done heaven's way. Second Corinthians 2 and 14, but thanks be to God who made us his captive and leads us along Christ's triumphal procession. Ephesians 4 and 8 refers to Psalm 68, 18 when, he, when it's recorded, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So just as the Roman general led his captives, what does Jesus, when he ascends on high, he led captivity captive? What all does captivity cover? Captivity covers anything that stops you. Anything. It's up to you to consider yourself free or not. He conquered it. Now what will you do? That's basically the, the crux of the whole matter. With the angelic host proclaimed, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was hometown of Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, where she met Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. In this story, the destitute widow and the man from Bethlehem who, lay, who later married, protected, and provided for her, we see a picture of Jesus, a type, our kinsman redeemer. To understand the significance of this, we must look at Israel's, Israel's history preserved in Scripture. In ancient times, family members could redeem or buy back individuals who had sold themselves into slavery. This act demonstrated hesed, translated as loving kindness or mercy. In meeting the deep needs and others based on relationship of commitment and covenant. The village had birthed our Redeemer has a rich history of redemption. Why is it important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Bethlehem means house of bread. Beth means house. Lehem means bread. And bread held great importance in Bible times. It was a staple in the ancient diet and provided not only comfort but nourishment necessary for survival. Used in temple worship, bread also came to symbolize God's provision and presence and played an important role in Jewish Passover celebrations. This again pointed back to Christ as a Redeemer. You may be familiar with the story. God's people had been oppressed for 400 years under Egyptian rule. But God heard their cries and sent a liberator to set them free and lead them to the promised land. En route, God taught them how to have an intimate relationship with Him. And that relationship was based on total dependence. Each day, God fed them manna, a bread substance, 
bread-like substance, teaching them that He alone was their provider and sustainer. Scripture points out, points toward a promise to come from Bethlehem. God promised that Jesus, the bread of life, would come back when mankind first felt his need for a Savior. Genesis 3 and 15. Throughout Scripture, God reiterated this promise and he led his people in a Passover meal and liberated them from Egypt, provided man in the desert and revealed their Redeemer through the romance of a widow and a rich landowner. Then after, and in Micah 5 and 2, then after generations, all these vivid illustrations, God spoke more directly. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and he will be the source of peace. Uh, we're running out of time. We'll move on. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come. I'll stop there for now. Late in time. This lyric in the second verse is on its face a little strange. How can God, the Lord over time itself, be late? As part of a family that struggles with punctuality, <laughs> it's somehow comforting that even the Lord is being described as late. But that is, of course, not the precise meaning of late that is being used here. Late doesn't solely mean running behind schedule. That's not likely applied to God, but it raises an important point about biblical time. The Koine Greek language in which the New Testament was written has two words for time. And they have subtly different meanings. Chronos is the word from which we derive modern words like chronology, chronometer, chronometer rather, where it depends on where you're from, and chronic. It's used for the regular prog progression of time, hours, days, weeks, and years. Chronos time is the world of schedules and clocks and calendars. And though God works in Kronos time, the most important event on heaven's calendars are scheduled in Kairos time. Kairos is the other Greek word for time, and it's used for specific important moments and seasons that may or may not come regularly in Kronos time. The time of the Pharaohs is Kairos. A specific period, but you can't exactly say that it began at this time or that and lasted till this time or that. It's like when I was young, 
is Kairos time. And so is when I grow up. The Bible uses the word Kairos in verses like, at just the right time, while we were still powerless or Christ died for us. In essence, you could say it's used for redemptive time, the hidden schedule of God's master redemptive plan that began in a garden and ends in a city. Kairos is why the Bible sometimes skips over hundreds or thousands of years of history and sometimes fails to mention contemporary rulers whom archaeologists and historians number among the movers and shakers of the world. They aren't significant in Cairo's time. It's Cairo's time that encapsulates the messianic prophecies that state that in the last days God would send a Messiah. Kairos-wise, we've been in the last days since Bethlehem in about 4 B.C. And it's this to which the lyric refers. All the waiting and expectancy is over. All the prophetic time through Adam and all the prophets. The time of promise is here. Celebrating the inauguration of the last days and the coming of the central figure of the entire Bible. Late in the year, we celebrate the advent of the one who God promised to send late in time. We'll move on to offspring of a virgin's womb. This is, these next few verses to me are some of the, probably should have started with them. The doctrine of the virgin birth teaches us that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. That is, when Mary conceived Jesus, she had never had intercourse. Jesus' birth, therefore, was truly miraculous. The virgin birth is a crucially important doctrine and one that the Bible plainly teaches. Let's look at how Scripture describes the virgin birth. Gabriel visits the Virgin Mary to bring her the news that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Gabriel's reply indicates the miraculous nature of the conception. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Gabriel later repeats the news to Joseph, betrothed to be married, married to Mary. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Ghost. Joseph needed this information because before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Accepting God's word on the matter, Joseph proceeded to take Mary as his wife. But she remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, as in Matthew 1 and 25. The gospel writers are judicious in their wording to maintain the doctrine of the virgin birth. In his genealogy of Jesus, Luke mentions that Jesus was the son 
as was supposed of Joseph. In his genealogy, Matthew carefully avoids calling Joseph the father of Jesus. Rather, he speaks of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother who is called the mother of the Messiah. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ was predicted in Old Testament. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 and 14. There is also possible allusion to the virgin birth in Genesis 3.15, which says the seed of the woman will destroy the serpent. The virgin birth is important in that it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. His physical body he received from Mary, but his eternal holy nature was his from God. Joseph, the carpenter, did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not his father. Jesus had no sinful nature, as recorded in Hebrews 7 and 26. The next line in the song is, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It doesn't say great is the mystery of the Godhead. It says great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. The term Godhead is found three times in the King James Version. Acts 17, 29, Romans 1 and 20, and Colossians 2 and 9. In each of the three verses, a slightly different Greek word is used, but the definition of each is the same, deity or divine nature. The word Godhead is used to refer to God's essential nature. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking on Mars' heel to the philosophers of Athens. As he argues against idolatry, Paul says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Here the word Godhead is the translation of the Greek theon, a word used by the Greeks to denote God in general. With no reference to a particular deity, Paul speaking to Greeks used the term in reference to the only true God. In Romans 1, Paul begins to make the case that all humanity stands guilty before God. In verse 20 he says, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here Godhead is theatus. Paul's argument is that all creation virtually shouts the existence of God. 
we can clearly see God's eternal power as well as His Godhead and what He has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands in Psalm 19 and 1. The natural world makes manifest the divine nature of God. And in Colossians 2 and 9, it's one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible. In Him, meaning Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The word Godhead here is theatus. According to this verse, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He embodies all the fullness of God, translated the deity. This truth aligns perfectly with Colossians 1 and 19. God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, meaning Christ. Because the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ, Jesus could rightly claim that He and the Father are one, as He said in John 10 and 30. Because the fullness of God's divine essence is present in the Son of God, Jesus could say to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, as in John 14 and 9. In summary, the Godhead is the essence of the divine being. The Godhead is the one and only deity. Jesus, the incarnate Godhead, entered our world and showed us exactly who God is. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who Himself God who is Himself God and is in closest relationship. John 1 and 18. And Hebrews 1 and 3, who belonged, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, in Matthew 1 and 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I don't even remember what verse we're on. What number, rather. Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Hmm. I'm almost out of time. Uh, let's see, Isaiah 9 and 6. In Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And let's jump down... Um, Let's see here. The phrase, the son of righteousness, appears in Malachi 4 and 2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from a stall. The bless this blessing is promised to those who fear the Lord and are ready for his return. The son of righteousness can also be translated son of vindication. The context concerns the day of the Lord. 
the time when God vindicates His people and judges sin, this vindication will be clear to all. Like the bright light of the sunrise, the one described as the Son of Righteousness can be no other than Jesus Christ Himself. The Lord is called the Lord your righteousness in Jeremiah 23 and 6. And the coming of the Messiah is pictured as a sunrise in several passages. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you in Isaiah 60 and 1. We're going to stop there because <laughs> it's 1040 basically and I am nowhere close to done, Brett's service. I won't laugh at you anymore. Yes, I will. We're in church. You ain't supposed to lie. Uh, or Paul or I didn't know if he had something he wanted to say. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Why don't you stand to your feet? Amen. We're thankful for, the, uh, for this. Three, we've done a three-part series. Let me just explain for anybody that's brand new. We have first word, and that's what you were in this morning. And we usually do a series, uh, a teaching series, while our kids are in class. And at the end of that, we have usually a 10-minute break, and then everybody comes back in, and then we have our worship. Today's a little bit different, as many of you know. Um, our kids have been getting ready in the back. Uh, we're going to have just a few more minutes of a break today. We can give you chan a chance to walk out, take a break, um, uh, check on your kiddos or whatever the case may be. And then at 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock, we're going to start our Christmas program with our kids. After that, after we have a great time and laugh a lot, there'll probably be some parents at some point that are like, oh my goodness, they really just did that, I'm sure. Um, after that, we're going to have a meal together, and everybody is welcome to stay. We want you to know that we want you to stay and be here for this meal after the service. We will ask you to help us out, though. We've got a lot of kids here, and we're going to make sure that we take care of our kids and help serve them. Um, they can go through the line with us, but we want to serve them. I'll probably repeat this part for everyone to hear, um, but we want to make sure that they eat well, you eat well, we laugh, we have a good time, and we share this meal together. Are you thankful for all the Lord's been doing? Amen. We're thankful for it. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank the Lord for what we just heard. Thank you for what he's going to do. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your touch. We thank you for your strength today, God. We thank you, Lord, for what we're going to experience today in this, this wonderful day where our children get to um, they perform a play, but most importantly, they are sharing a story of what this season is. And I pray, Lord, that even through this program that someone is encouraged, someone is uplifted, and I believe someone's life can even be changed today. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. Thank you for the word we heard this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. We're going to have a few minutes of a break, and then we'll get started again. And please welcome somebody. If it's your first time here, we welcome you to this church.